Welcome to Spiritual Mythbusters. I'm your host, Paul Graves, and this is the place where we always share what we value as truth and promise to always share it in love. This podcast is an outreach of Bible to Life Ministry located in Northeast Florida. So if you enjoy what you hear, visit us at BibleToLife.net. That's B-I-B-L-E-T-O-L-I-F-E dot net and click on resources to view our BTL Kingdom blog, sermons, and bookstore. Now put on your spiritual thinking caps and let's dive into another episode. Welcome back to Spiritual Mythbusters. Once again, I am your host, Paul Graves, and we have got another uh, interesting episode today. What we're going to do is, for the past number of weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We've asked the question, what is the kingdom? And we've answered the question, what is the kingdom? We've asked and we've answered the question, what is the power of the kingdom? What is the purpose of the kingdom? And then last week, we dealt with what is the promise of the kingdom? And this week, what we're going to talk about is kingdom came with the king. All right, so why is this teaching important? Well, because many believers have been taught that the kingdom of God is not present on the earth. Individuals that have taught this type of a a theology or philosophy have a lack of understanding of what the kingdom actually is according to Scripture. So within today's episode, we want to answer two questions. The first question is, has the kingdom of God already come? And the second question is, if the kingdom of God has already come, when did the kingdom of God arrive? Okay, so within church today, there are four different perspectives regarding the kingdom of God. And I don't want to go into detail with each one of these individual belief systems. But what I do want to do is just give you an overview of what certain people believe within the body of Christ. And this is going to help us in sharing what I want to push out to you today. Some believers believe that the kingdom of God or the kingdom has yet to come. All right. They will tell you that we are living in a church age waiting for Jesus's final return in order to establish his kingdom authority and power on earth. So these individuals do not believe in the authority or the power. They do not believe that his kingdom has come, and they're awaiting for his kingdom to arrive at a future date in history. Some believers believe that the kingdom came during Jesus' earthly ministry, though was taken back because of Israel's rejection of Christ as king. All right, so therefore, we are waiting on Christ one day in the future again to set up a natural kingdom on earth after the final day or return. All right, so there again, these individuals do not believe that the kingdom is here. They believe the kingdom came, but unfortunately, Israel rejected the kingdom, so God took the kingdom back, and the kingdom will not be present on earth until a later date when Jesus returns on the final day. Then you have some believers that believe that kingdom is now, okay? They believe the kingdom is now, but not yet. And this is probably something that most of us have heard Kingdom now, but not yet teaching. In other words, the kingdom came in seed form at Pentecost after the Spirit of God was poured out on all flesh, but has not continued to come in its fullest. All right, so it's been poured out on all flesh, which is the kingdom of God, through the Spirit of Christ on the day of Pentecost, but has not come in its fullest. So why is this? It's because these individuals are allowing what they see to determine what they believe. 
So because they do not see earth looking like heaven, or because in their opinion God has not caused earth to look like heaven, then the kingdom has come, but unfortunately the kingdom has not come in the fullness of the king. Therefore, once again, it's postponed into some future date when Jesus Christ will have more authority then than he has now. All right, so those are three perspectives. I don't share any one of those three perspectives. I share the fourth perspective, okay, that I'm going to share with you now. I believe that the kingdom came with the king at his birth and will never stop growing. Therefore, as new covenant believers, we are presently living in the kingdom age, not the church age, a never-ending period of time where Jesus is presently king of kings. And Jesus is currently or presently right now today, Lord of lords. And what is he doing? He is ruling and he is reigning with all authority, seated upon David's throne at the right hand of Father God. He is working through his body, the church, to fulfill all things and therefore ever advancing his already established kingdom on earth. Wow. I know that's a mouthful, so you may want to rewind and go back and listen to it again. But the bottom line is, I do not believe that we are postponing the kingdom reign, rule, and authority of Christ the King. I believe that Christ is already seated on David's throne. I believe that Christ has already been inaugurated back into office as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I believe that the Spirit of Christ has been poured out into the earth and that when non-believers receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, they receive not only the King, but they receive His kingdom and the Holy Spirit. And to the increase of the government and of His peace, which is the kingdom of God, I believe scripture says there shall be no end. Today we want to talk about, in detail, the kingdom came with the king. And the way I want to do this is I want to use Daniel chapter 2, and I'd like to show you through Daniel how the kingdom came with the king. Nebuchadnezzar was a king over Babylon. In the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had a troubling dream. All right, so King Nebuchadnezzar called for all of his magicians, all of his conjurers, all of his sorcerers, everybody that he had, all of his wise men he called, and he ordered them to tell him the dream and to give the interpretation. Now, this is strange because typically when a, a king has a dream, what the king will do is tell the, the wise men the dream, and then they would give the interpretation. But that is not what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted in this case. So after being told it was impossible to tell the king his dream, King Nebuchadnezzar said that they, meaning the wise men, would all be torn limb from limb and their houses would be made a rubbish heap if they could not share with him first the dream and then give the interpretation. Though all his wise men once again told him, no, king, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. This is what you're requesting is basically impossible. It has never been done and it cannot be done. Well, this enraged the king. He sent out an edict across all the land to have all of his wise men killed. Daniel was one of King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. So I don't have time to go into the full story of how this happened, but let me just share just a little bit of background with you. Babylon took Daniel into captivity at the same time Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon. And during the beginning of Daniel's captivity, he had favor with the Lord 
and was chosen along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to serve in the king's courts or to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So when this edict goes out saying all the wise men are going to be killed, guess what? Daniel and his three friends are the wise men that would also be killed along with everyone else. So as they were coming to kill Daniel and his friends because of the edict, he requested an audience with the king for a time of extension. In other words, a time to inquire of the Lord regarding the dream and the interpretation. And then we learn that Daniel's request was granted and that a night vision was given to Daniel. In the night vision, God revealed both the dream and the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is kind of where I want to pick up teaching. So with that being said, let's pick up on Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. A statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. Listen to verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. O king, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands and has caused you to rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all things in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it will be a divided kingdom but it will have in it the toughest of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partially of iron and partially of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and parts of the kingdom will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere here to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, 
and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I would like to say that the dream that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar was interpreted by Daniel, but the dream was also given to Daniel. And so what Daniel is saying is that I saw in a night vision that there was a statue, and the statue had a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and it had legs of iron. And that this statue represents kingdoms. And the first kingdom was of your kingdom, O King Nebuchadnezzar, great one. The kingdom of Babylon was the head of gold. But there will come a kingdom after you, which will be represented in the dream as a breast and arms of silver, which we know in history was the Medo-Persia. And then there will be a third kingdom of bronze, which we know was Greece. And then there would be a fourth kingdom that comes after Greece, which we know historically as Rome. Rome was the legs of iron. And then there would be 10 toes, or there would be feet with 10 toes. They would be made of both iron and clay, which means that they would be both strong and brittle. So he proceeds to share with King Nebuchadnezzar the dream he has, and then giving the interpretation that each one of these body parts represents a kingdom in a chronological order. And then in verse 34, he says, you continued looking. In other words, this was the dream you had. This is what it represents. And then you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statute on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. But the stone that struck, this is verse 35, but the stone that struck the statute became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Then he says in verse 44, in the days of those kings, this is very important, this is a time indicator, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will in itself endure forever. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So it's important to note at this point that all the way up until the ten toes, Bible scholars and theologians do not dispute the chronology of the reign of these kingdoms. So they don't dispute it was Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome. Though it is the ten toes that has caused much dispute. Many Bible scholars and theologians want to place the feet or the toes somewhere in the future. Although the text or the context doesn't warrant it being placed in the future, you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, you have Greece, you have Rome, 
And so it would only make sense that the feet of the ten toe, and the ten toes of the feet would be in concession. What most scholars want to do is take that and they just want to push it way out into the future. What I would like to present to you today is that the ten toes are in chronological order. You know, they're a time indicator that is in our past, not in our future. Well, Paul, where do you get that from? Well, let's start out with Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It says, in the days of those kings. So there's your time indicator. It says, in the days of those kings, the king of Babylon, the king of Mea-Persia, the king of Greece, the king of Rome, in the day of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush. What will? The kingdom that God is setting up will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it, the kingdom that God is setting up, will endure forever. So the question remains, what are the ten toes and what do they represent? Interesting fact. Historically, we learned that in 27 BC, Caesar Augustus became the emperor of Rome. And the first thing Caesar Augustus did when he became the emperor of Rome was he divided the Roman Empire into 10 provinces. And the reason he did that was because Rome was so big. And in doing so, he appointed kings over each province. So in other words, Caesar Augustus became emperor of Rome, but he also became king of kings. So when we talk about Rome being the legs of iron and then the feet of iron and partially clay, the feet of ten toes, what I believe that represents is that the ten providences of Rome that had ten kings that Caesar Augustus in 27 BC as emperor of Rome set up in order to divide the kingdom of Rome into ten different regions. It was during the time period of the ten providences that a stone was cut without hands out of a mountain. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. It says, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. If we go back up, we see here in verse 34, it says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them all. So there was a stone that was cut not by the hands of man, but it was cut out of a mountain. And this stone came and crushed the feet or the ten toes completely. Verse 35, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain. So after the stone that was cut out of a mountain without of the hands of man that came down and crushed the ten toes, it crushed the feet. Then verse 35 says, but the stone that struck the statue did what? It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I hope this is making sense. I don't want to go too quickly into what I'm sharing, but at this point we have identified the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel says that a stone was cut out of a mountain without the hands of man. And that stone came and it crushed and put an end to the 10 toes. So if what I'm saying is correct and the 10 toes were the 10 providences that were created by Caesar Augustus during his reign from 27 BC, to 
14 AD, then that is significant because these are time indicators. Daniel 2.44 once again says, In the days of those kings, God set up a kingdom. Our God set up a kingdom on earth in the days of those kings. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. So in other words, a stone was hewed from a mountain without human hands, and it was that stone that put an end to all other kingdoms. Man, I hope this is making sense to you guys. I, I don't want to tell you what, what to believe. I'm just sharing with you what's here, so I'm holding back. So the question is, what is the stone and what is the mountain? Because Daniel saw a stone that was cut out of a mountain, not hewed by the hands of man. Historically, we find that Caesar Augustus was emperor of Rome from 27 BC to 14 AD. Now, the question is, what is the stone and what is the mountain? And so we're going to deal first with the stone. Caesar Augustus was emperor of Rome from 27 BC to 14 AD. So my question to you, and I'll pause a little bit for you to think about this before I give the answer. What significant biblical event took place in history? recorded history between 27 B.C. and 14 A.D. What significant biblical event? The significant biblical event that took place between 27 B.C. and 14 A.D. was the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born in 3 B.C. I would like to present to you that Jesus was the stone cut out of a mountain without hands that struck the statue on its feet and crushed them all. It's not far-fetched. We read all the way through Scripture from the Old Covenant or from the Old Testament and throughout the Old Covenant to the New Testament and throughout the New Covenant that Jesus is the rock. In other words, in Psalms 18.2, he was the rock of our salvation. In Psalm 62, 6 through 9, and Matthew 7, 24, he is the solid rock of our foundation in truth. We read in Ephesians 2, 20, that Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. Then we read in Matthew 21, 42, Acts 4, 11, that Jesus was the stone the builders rejected. So let's talk about rock. What, what is a rock? Rock represents what? The elements of the earth. So as the rock would relate to Jesus, relating Jesus to or as the rock would represent his natural aspects as the Son of God. So he was a rock, the elements of the earth. So cut out of the mountain then, not by the hands, represents the deity. In other words, the spiritual aspect of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. What we see is that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. That was his divinity. He was deity wrapped in flesh. That was his humanity. So when we speak of Jesus as the rock, the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected, we're speaking of the humanity of Christ. But when we talk about a stone that was cut out of a mountain, not by the hands of man. We're talking about that same stone that represents humanity is also the same stone that represents the divinity or the deity of God, the spiritual aspect. So the rock 
represents Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, but the stone that was cut out of a mountain, not by the hands of man, that was conceived of the Holy Spirit, although born of a virgin, represents the Son of God and God the Son, the deity of God himself. So Daniel receives the interpretation that during the time period when Rome was divided into ten providences, Jesus the Son of Man, Son of God, and God the Son, Jesus the rock of our salvation, would be born on earth. Jesus was the stone cut out of a mountain without the hands of man. That's powerful. Look, we have to understand that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament testified or gave testimony of the Christ to come. Isaiah, Jeremiah. You talk about the prophets of the Old Covenant. What did they do? They they gave testimony of the Messiah to come. Daniel in chapter 2 gives testimony of the Messiah. Daniel in chapter 7 gives testimony of the Messiah. Daniel in chapter 9 gives testimony of the Messiah. So what Daniel is doing is he has received a dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar concerning the future of a messianic promise of a Messiah and his kingdom to come. So if the rock is Jesus Christ, then let's talk about the mountain. What is the mountain? Mountain is a reference to Mount Zion. When you read about the mountain, or you read when, when the majority of references of mountain in an old covenant is referencing Mount Zion. So mountain is a reference of Mount Zion, which is a reference in the new covenant to God's spiritual kingdom. So in the Old Testament, let me say it this way. In the Old Testament, it represented his people. Mount Zion represented his people. And in the New Testament, it says in Hebrews 12, it speaks of believers coming to a Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So in the Old Covenant, Mount Zion was an actual mountain that represented God's people. But in the New Testament, Mount Zion has now become a holy habitation. Mount Zion has now become a spiritual dwelling place of God. Mount Zion has now become the heavenly Jerusalem. So we read in Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. As a pattern throughout biblical history, we always see many times first the natural, then the spiritual. So in the Old Testament, there was a natural Jerusalem. But in the New Testament or in the New Covenant, there is a heavenly Jerusalem. In the Old Testament or within the Old Covenant, there was a natural Mount Zion representing God's people, representing the nation of Israel or the kingdom of Israel. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant, Mount Zion represents God's spiritual kingdom. It represents the kingdom of God. It represents the reign of God, the rule of God, and the authority of God established within the hearts of God's people. Where do I get this from? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 46. And when I say, where do I get this from? I'm talking about first the natural, then the spiritual. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 46, it says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So in other words, God did things in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant in the natural to show us the spiritual side 
of the new covenant. The moment the rock, Christ Jesus, was born, his kingdom was established on the earth within Jesus. And that kingdom, the kingdom of God, began to grow from that very moment. Let's look at Daniel 2.35 to help support my, my thought process. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and becoming like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue, Jesus who struck the statue, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, or became a great kingdom and filled the entire earth. What does Daniel 2.44 say? We alluded to it earlier. It says, in the days of those kings. It didn't say when Jesus finally returns on the last day. It didn't say after the church is raptured out for seven-year tribulation and Jesus comes back. It doesn't say at a later date in history. It says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Wow. Once the kingdom is set up, once the kingdom is established, it will continue to increase. It will continue to grow. And Daniel 2.44 says, in the days of those kings is when God set up his kingdom. It's right there. What do we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15? It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So let me just touch on something right here. You may believe that the book of Revelation was written in AD 68, or you may believe that the book of Revelation was written in AD 95. Regardless of when you believe, the book of Revelation was written. Revelation or the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is in our past, meaning that the author wrote it in our past. So if it's in our past and it's speaking of something that has already taken place, then we must know that it's not something that's waiting to happen in the future. Revelation eleven fifteen says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of this world has already become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Jesus is already reigning throughout all eternity. Let me say it this way. As new covenant believers, we are not waiting for Christ's kingdom to come one day in the future. I believe, according to scripture, his kingdom has already come at the birth of the king. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed, Scripture says. A kingdom that has already crushed all other kingdoms, the Scripture says. A kingdom that will forever increase and a kingdom that will endure forever. That's what the Scripture says. Scripture clearly states that God's kingdom, once established, once initiated, or once set up, will never end. So let's do this. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And I want to show you, in my opinion, based on my understanding, where God marries the kingdom and the king at the birth of Christ. I want to show you where 
there's the joining of the birth of the king with the coming kingdom of God. So Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says this, says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, listen to this, and the government or the kingdom of God will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to this. There will be no end to the increase of his government. In other words, there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah is prophesying that the kingdom came with the king and to the increase of his governance and of his peace, there will be no end. Look, we see this in a new covenant. It's in a new testament with John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, this is what Matthew is writing concerning John the Baptist. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember, we, we've talked about the term kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. It's not a place. It's the reign, the rule, and the authority of Christ the King. So in other words, the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. They're synonymous. So you'll read maybe in Mark about the kingdom of God, and you'll read in, in Matthew where Matthew uses the term the kingdom of heaven. At hand, when you read that, it denotes that the kingdom has already arrived. So John the Baptist is already admitting that the kingdom of God has already arrived. In other words, it's within your grasp. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So an interesting thought is this. Unlike the Old Testament, when there was only a small remnant of the called out ones, in the New Covenant, starting on the day of Pentecost, with the outpouring of God's Spirit, the church was birthed as believers were added to the church. In other words, believers received the king, his kingdom, and the Holy Spirit the very moment they were born again, forever increasing God's kingdom. As a non-believer confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost is in the earth, as that non-believer believes, that believer now receives the king, the kingdom, and the Holy Spirit. He receives the reign, the rule, and the authority of Christ the King. That believer now comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He now enters into the kingdom of God, governed by the kingdom, reigning and ruling with Christ, with all authority, seated with him in heavenly places. We learned about this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 last week. We talked about not only had the kingdom come, but the kingdom would continue to increase. So Isaiah says to the increase of the governance and the peace of the kingdom, there shall be no end. Well, in Matthew 13, 31 through 35, we read about the parables. There's two parables we read about. And it demonstrates the kingdom starting out small as a little leaven that was sowed into three scores of bread or three scores of dough. And the leaven eventually over time overtakes all three scores. 
So in other words, a little leaven leavened the whole lump. That's a picture, a parallel of Jesus born with the kingdom inside of him. And then Jesus says during his ministry that those who believe in me, the works I do, you will do in greater works. Why? Because I go to my father. Why was that important? Because when he went to his father, the spirit of God was poured out. And when non-believers believe, they receive the spirit of God, which means they receive the king, the kingdom, and the Holy Spirit, which means the kingdom of God on earth that started with Jesus has now advanced by another believer. And so every time a son or a daughter, a mother or a father, a sister or a brother, a male or a female is born again, the kingdom of God is increasing and it is advancing a kingdom that came with the king, but to the increase of the government and the peace of the king within the hearts of his sons and daughters, there will not be an end. Man, that is powerful. Then we learned in Matthew 13, in that same two parables, we learned about how the kingdom of God was likened to a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But when sowed into the earth, it grew to be the largest of trees covering the earth, providing shade for all the birds and their nests. So that's a picture of the kingdom. The kingdom came as a smallest of seed, and then the kingdom grew throughout the earth to a huge tree. In other words, the knowledge of God's glory, his experiential goodness, revealed through sons and daughters of God to the earth, will cause God's glory to cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the kingdom of God is increasing and is advancing and will continue to increase and advance. And Christ, who is the king of his kingdom, will forever sit upon his throne. We are not waiting for a day in the future for Christ to be crowned king. Christ is already king. We're not waiting for some day in the future for Christ to receive all authority. Matthew 28 says he's already received all authority in both heaven and earth. We are not waiting for someday in the future for Christ to return before the knowledge of his glory covers the earth as the waters covers the sea. Because through his ecclesia, his called out ones in the new covenant, his assembly of believers, we are called as his body, as Christ as our head, to cause the enemies of God to become a footstool for his feet. We are called to make the manifest wisdom of God or the manifold wisdom of God known to principalities and rulers of the air. We are called to disciple nations. We are called, as it says in in Matthew 6, 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it is our responsibility as the body of Christ with the coming kingdom living within our hearts as we receive the King and the Holy Spirit to cause earth to look like heaven as we go out in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and a people that are touched by God touch people with God. It is our functional responsibility to enforce in the earth all Christ legally accomplished on the cross. If we only knew who we were as the body of Christ, you see, it's not enough for us to know our identity. It's not enough for us to know who we are in Christ. We also have to gain a revelation of the fullness of who Christ already is on the inside of us. We have to understand that there's a functional responsibility, a purpose within the body of Christ. As Christ is our head, to subdue this earth, to rule over this earth, to take dominion over this earth. Listen, the church is not waiting for God. Or I should say, the church is not waiting for God's kingdom to come one day in the future. 
His kingdom has already come at the birth of our king. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed. A kingdom that has already crushed all other kingdoms. A kingdom that will endure forever of the increase of Christ's government and of His peace. God's kingdom, which came with the birth of our king, will never end. As your host, Paul Graves, I want to thank you for listening to Spiritual Mythbusters. If you like what you've heard, then once again visit us at BibleToLife.net. That's B-I-B-L-E-T-O-L-I-F-E dot net and click on Resources to access our BTL Kingdom blog, sermons, and bookstore. So until next week, always remember, if you want to see the glory of God, then you must release God's glory.